the church. We're going to continue in a series we've been doing. We've been doing a sermon series called Making the Most Of, and we've been talking about making the most of life. We've talked about lots of different topics in this series, and today we're going to talk about money. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12. For those of you who like to get a head start, I'm fine on the passage, um, so you can go ahead and turn there. Next week's the last week in this series. We're going to talk about making the most of God's Word. We're going to be in Second Timothy, so if you want to start studying that, Second Timothy chapter 3, um, you can go ahead and get a head start there. But I'm going to pray for us. Uh, for today's message that God would speak to us and uh, make a difference in our hearts and our lives and eternity. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word, uh, that we don't just come together to hang out or just come together to have fun, as great as it is to have fun, but um, that you speak to us and you have divine moments for us. And I pray you'd speak to us through your word as we open it. Uh, I pray you'd open our hearts. God, I pray you'd change us, that you'd allow us to sense your presence since you're speaking, I don't know what's happening in every person's life, but you do, and so you can speak directly. Will you please, between my words and through my words, speak by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word into our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Like I said in this Making the Most Of series, we've talked about really making the most of life is what we're talking about, and we've talked about different topics, making the most of our talent, making the most of our time, making the most of our relationships. Underlying each one of those messages is a verse of scripture that we haven't actually turned to yet. It's Jesus speaking in John chapter 10, and it kind of pushes everything we're talking about. Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So there's someone who actually wants to rob you of what Jesus came to give you. What did Jesus come to give you? I have come that they may have life. He came to give you life, real life, abundant life, and have it to the full. So the question for us is, how do we have life to the full? How do we experience life on every level the way that God intends for us to experience life. How can we have what some translations call the abundant life? What it says here, the life to the full or to the fullest, some translations say. How can we have life to the fullest? How can we experience it the way that God wants us to in every arena? And so we talked about time, just kind of like the framework of life. Talking about our talents and using those talents to the best of our abilities to be able to make a difference for the kingdom. Talked about last week about using our relationships. And this week we talk about one a topic unlike any other in the series that has the greatest potential to rob us of the life that God intends for us to have. Today we talk about money. And there's a lot said about money. Money makes the world go round. No, it doesn't. God does. But we hear that said. They're still printing money today, and on that money they still print the phrase, in God we trust. Can you believe that they still print that on the money that they're making today? In God we trust? You take out coins and you take out dollars and you look at them and say, God, we trust right on them. But few of us think about how we use that money actually shows whether or not it's in God we trust. But that's true. And you think about money. You think about what God says about money. You think about what the world says about money. You think about all the things that you've heard about money. It's the one thing that, of all the things we'll talk about in the series, has the greatest potential to rob you of the life that God came to give you. Life to the fullest, abundant life, that we'd make the most of this life. Some of you are familiar with the Bible. Maybe you've heard the story of the rich young ruler before. If not, you can read it in Luke chapter 18. And I'll just summarize it for you. What ends up happening is there's a young guy who's achieved a level of success. He's a young professional guy. It's called the rich young ruler. He's gotten to a place in wealth in his life. But like many people who get to a place of success, he's gotten to the spot where he feels like there's got to be more. There's still something missing. And so he's gotten to a position and he's gotten an amount of wealth, but he feels like there's still something missing in his life. And he hears about this guy named Jesus. He lived during the same time as Jesus, who's been teaching. And Jesus' teaching is different than any other religious person ever before. Because it's like Jesus isn't really teaching about religion. Jesus instead is teaching how to connect with God. It's like Jesus is a conduit to God. It's almost like he's the way. And so all kinds of people are being drawn to him. There's religious people that are coming because their religion's not delivering on what they're hoping. And there are sinners, there are tax collectors and prostitutes that are coming to Jesus. And so this rich young guy, he decides that he's going to go to Jesus. And he goes to Jesus in Luke chapter 18 and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in a way that Jesus often does because he teaches through his answers, says it's simple, just be perfect. <laughs> okay. Uh, he goes on and he says, don't murder anybody, don't commit adultery, don't steal anything, don't lie. And the guy lies in response. So I've done all that. Well, everybody lies, you've lied, everyone's, no one's perfect. And so Jesus, in a way that Jesus has an uncanny ability to do, goes past our outward presentations of how we present ourselves and he speaks right to the guy's heart. He knows the guy loves money. He says this, it's interesting, if you're looking, if you're studying the Bible, he says one thing you lack, then he tells him three things. 
He says, one thing you lack, go sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, then follow me. Well, you don't get an eternal life by selling your possessions. You don't get eternal life by giving to the poor, but you do by following Jesus. But what Jesus was saying is, these two things are stopping you from getting the third thing. Do you know what the Bible says happens in the guy's life? It says he's sad because he has money. Luke chapter 18, verse 23. When he, the rich young guy, had heard this, he became very sad because, that's a huge word, he was a man of great wealth. He was sad because he had a lot of money? You don't hear that presented very often in commercials, do you? If you had a lot of money, you'd be really depressed. But the Bible says it was because of his wealth that was the very thing that robbed him of getting the very thing that Jesus came to give him, which was life. It's the problem for many of us. We might not think that we're rich. We might not rule anything. But it's our faulty view of money that's causing us to miss out on the life that God intends for us to have. And today we're going to talk about how to make the most of the money that you have, whatever much that is, making the most of your money. If you have your Bible, we're going to get a passage of Scripture a little bit before the story of the rich young ruler. In fact, Jesus talks a lot about money. Another place that he does is in Luke chapter 12. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 13 through 21, Lord willing, today. And it's a story, a parable of a rich fool or a parable of a rich farmer. Some of your translations may say at the top. And what's happening in Luke chapter 12, the context actually goes all the way back to Luke chapter 11. Jesus was having lunch at one of the religious guys' houses. His name was, he was called a Pharisee. That's the title of some of the religious people at that time. And Jesus knows that these guys really value the rules. So Jesus doesn't wash his hands before the meal. Now, some of you may be in the bathroom before, and you see somebody leave. They don't wash their hands. You think maybe, like me, get judgmental in that moment, and you think to yourself, Did that, your mom not teach you to wash your hands? Well, Jesus wasn't just being rude. He knew that was one of the religious rules, and what Jesus is doing is he's making a point. He knows that guy's going to be highly offended by this, and he's pointing out to him, you're more concerned about your religious rules than you are about the reality of your heart. And what Jesus goes on to do with this religious guy is he starts to confront him. What's interesting is this is a public situation. It's not just him and this guy having a, a lunch together. People would come and they'd watch this, especially with two religious leaders. They'd listen in on this meeting. And so Jesus says to him some different woes. He says, woe to you because you tithe, but you don't love God. Woe to you because you clean up the outside of your life, but you haven't dealt with the core issues, like Kay was talking about in her story. You haven't dealt with the stuff going on on the inside. Woe to you because you're a religious hypocrite. And some of the people that are listening go, wait, Jesus, you're offending us too. You know what Jesus does? He goes, woe to you too. Let me tell you the stuff going on in your life. And other people are going, I'm not saying a thing. <laughs> so they're watching. The... Then Jesus leaves the lunch. And if you have a Bible, maybe look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. When Jesus leaves this lunch, then thousands upon thousands of people start coming towards, they're trampling each other to get to Jesus. Because here's a guy, he's not teaching more religious rules, he's actually trying to connect us to God. And as he's doing this, Jesus, as these people are coming, Jesus starts teaching them some very important stuff in verses 1 through 12. He talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit empowering us. We stand before leaders and rulers that he'll give us the words to say from his word. He talks about not denying him before men. And how the Father will treat us when we're before him. And as he's speaking these things, all these huge truths, mostly about the Holy Spirit, some guy in the crowds, there's like thousands upon thousands, some people believe maybe over 10,000 people that have come to hear Jesus. Somebody in the crowd yells out, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, Jesus! And instead of Jesus giving a little nod to Peter and John, like, Get that guy out of here. I'm teaching him about the Holy Spirit. He addresses the question. He wasn't talking about money. But it was on the front of the minds of many. And so Jesus speaks. Look at what he says. Luke chapter 12, starting verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, thousands of people gathered around, and this guy yells out, Teacher, Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Which is interesting, since one day Jesus will judge all of us in everything. Then he said to, not him, then he said to them, the thousands of people that are there, and to us, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he gives this principle, this proverbial truth. And then it says, verse 16, and he told them this parable. And so the way this passage is structured is you get a principle, a proverbial truth, followed by a parable. A parable is a made-up story. 
that teaches the truth. And so he's teaching the truth he just said. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told in this parable, the ground of a certain rich man, it's just his name doesn't matter, he's a made-up person, produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have fun. Enjoy it now. But God said to him, this is God speaking, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says, with anyone. Not just this guy in this made-up story. Not just the guy with the inheritance. With anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And so here Jesus, knowing that the crowd's thinking about money, knowing this guy brings up the issue. He's in the midst of teaching some huge theological things. He gets interrupted, but he decides to address this. And he talks about money. And so let's talk about money. We all have some. Different levels, different amounts, but we all have some. Most of us believe if we just had a little bit more, life would be easier, life would be better. Maybe we even believe if we just had this amount, then we'd be happy. And most of us don't think that we're rich. If I say to you, you're rich, then most of us think, no, rich is, and you think of somebody else. Maybe it's a friend, maybe somebody you saw on TV, everybody thinks somebody's rich. Let me give you the biblical definition of rich. Biblical definition of rich is that you have more than you need, which means this, this is need. Need is not, oh man, I saw this thing, I didn't even know it existed, and I need that. Need is, if you have more clothes than what you're currently wearing, you have more than you need. Need, biblically defined, is you have more food than what you're going to eat today. So think about that. If you've got a pantry, refrigerator, maybe you've got some food in a freezer somewhere, then you, from God's perspective, are rich. Let that sink in for a minute, because most of us didn't enter here thinking, man, I'm rich. I just told you you're rich. That's like good news, right? And so the question is, not just how do I get more stuff, what do I do with the stuff that I have? How do I make the most of what God's already entrusted to me? Because, and maybe someone here is not rich. It's possible. But most likely, all of you have more than the clothes on your back, and all of you probably know more than just where today's food's coming from. Probably. I know it's possible that's not true. How do you make the most of what you do have? And one of the first things that has to happen is a shift in our thinking about money, and it comes from this proverbial principle that Jesus gave at the beginning, that life is about more than our possessions. Life is about more than our money. Life is about more than our stuff. Life is about more than just our possessions. Now, if you've gone to church very long, if, if you've been around, you'd probably agree with that, but is that how we live? Because you look at the Bible, and what the Bible continually tells us is that life is not only more about more than money, more than possessions. It's about more than just this life. And that's what this parable and this principle actually point us to. You see what Jesus says throughout the Bible? When Jesus is being tempted in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, do you know what he ends up saying? Man does not live on bread alone. It's about more than just what we see here. And he goes on to talk about God's word. And there's a spiritual element that's taking place. Later in Luke, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gives this statement that almost sounds like a riddle, and you can get twisted up in it. For whoever wants to save his life, Luke chapter 9, verse 24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What? But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Huh? What? Where did it go? Verse 25 tells us the answer. It's pretty simple. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Some of your translations say soul. So more than just this, more than just what we see. And the problem for the guy in the parable was he was living his life like it was all about now. How does it end? Well, you're going to lose your life today. And then what's going to happen? The question is not, do you have a will and who's going to get your stuff? The point was that that guy wasn't going to get to keep his stuff. And it doesn't matter because he lived like his life was just that, however long you want to say life is, 70 years, 80-year time frame that you're going to have. So for that 80 years, you live like it was all about that 80 years. You're a fool. And the problem is that many of us do this. I know that I've done this before. You, you live, now most of us wouldn't think that we live like life consists of our possessions. But how many times do we live our life like it's just about this life? It's just about these 80 years. And, and God, I just want you to make it good now. And I just, I just wish you'd fix these circumstances and do it my way. And we're not thinking about eternity. We're thinking about this situation. It's the way that we pray, the way that we live. I know that I do it. And we live as if, if I just obey God, if I'm just faithful, then he should do what I want him to do. 
You obey, he pays. We won't say it that crassly, but that's how we act. And there are some churches that actually teach that. And that's like the thrust of their way of teaching. Is it your best life now? Well, here's the bad news about that. If you get your best life now, you're in a lot of trouble later. But if you live, a lot of us would practically say, well, our church doesn't teach that. We don't, but we live like that. I know I do it sometimes. You live like, if I would just, I'm doing the right things and I'm being faithful. And so if I just do this, then you're supposed, this is how you're supposed to act on. You're supposed to do these things. I am supposed to be healthy. And you are supposed to bless me in these ways. It's a struggle. And do you know what we're actually doing? We're living like all it is, is this life. And I think about that and I try to think, Jesus is telling a made-up story here. Some of us, we have a hard time. We lose some things because it's about farming. Most of us don't live, we'll live in the ag world. We're not talking about agriculture and farming. We don't have any sheep at home. Maybe you do, but most of us don't. A couple of you might work for BASF. You make things better and all that kind of stuff. But most of us, for the most part, aren't in an agricultural world. And so you read this, and you think some of the stuff that's happening here, and even money throughout the Bible, there's agricultural world. You hear about first fruits and the harvest and some of those things, and we lose some of that. I wonder what Jesus would say if he came here today. And he made up the story again. And he's teaching. Maybe he comes and he's teaching on the Holy Spirit. And somebody says, hey, what about my money? And Jesus says, well, once there was a young guy in RTP. And he graduated from one of the local schools. I don't know which one. Probably not Duke. I don't, I just, I don't know. I don't know which one it would be. But it probably wouldn't be that one. And so he, he picks one of the local schools. The guy graduates from the school. And he gets a job in RTP working for one of the companies here. And he starts off. And things are going well. And he catches a few breaks. Next thing he knows, he gets a promotion. Then he gets an offer from another company, actually gets a buyout over here, takes the next company, and before he knows it, he's making more money than he ever thought he would make. And he thinks to himself, what should I do? Which is a great question. It's what the farmer asks. All of us should ask, whatever God's entrusted with, what should I do? And then one day he's on an airplane, he's reading Sky Mall magazine. They're having a going out of business sale. And he says, I didn't even know this existed, but I need one of these. So he buys one of those things. And then he realizes, you know, my smartphone's getting outdated. I need one of these. I need some nicer clothes. And I need a bigger house. And I need a nicer car. And he just starts spending all of his money on himself. And then God says, you fool. Notice it's not one of his buddies that says, you bought a robotic dog. You fool. It's God says, you fool. You're living your life like it's just about this life. It's about more than these 80 years that you get here or however long you get here. And how you live here is going to impact there. So be rich towards God. Live your life as if it doesn't just consist of possessions. And you think about how he tells this story to this crowd. So Jesus is teaching. Thousands of people are there. And he's teaching about the Holy Spirit. And somebody yells out, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Which has got to come out of left field, by the way. Like, it's totally different than what he's talking about. It makes me think about when I'm hanging out with my kids. I was tucking my one daughter in the other night, three years old. I'm rubbing her face, telling her, I love her, you're so precious to me, all these, like, I felt like we we're having this connecting moment, and she looks at me and goes, I really like fishing poles. <laughs> Good night, honey. Like, it's over with. It was like, where did that even come from? We weren't talking about fishing, we weren't talking about fishing, like, I don't know. And so Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit, and this guy says, and notice what he says, tell, he doesn't ask. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Go into your passage right there in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, which is a respectful title, but then he commands Jesus, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Do things my way. When I read that, it makes me think to myself, How did I pray this past week? What did I pray about? And you think about there's thousands of people, maybe 10,000 people there coming to Jesus, and they have different reasons. Some of them are genuine. Some of them are honestly curious, seeking. They want to know, is this guy really different? I want to see him for myself. Many of them are going, though, like Jesus is a genie. He fed people, and he can heal blind eyes, and so maybe he can fix my financial problems, or maybe he can change my marriage, or maybe he can do, and just do my thing. How did you pray this past week? When you go to Jesus, are you telling him what you want done? And we might not command him, how many times do we pray? God, just if you do this and you do that and this in that person's life and this in my life and it's more of a, hey, let me make sure you understand what's happening and what the best case scenario would be and that's how this guy approaches Jesus. He says, tell my brother, divide the inheritance with me. He probably has a mindset. If I just got this money, then everything would be okay. And you look at how Jesus responds to him and to us. 
He tells them, I'm not an arbiter or judge in these matters. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. He came for eternal matters, not to divide up inheritances. And so then he says in verse 15, then he said to not just that guy, but to them, the whole crowd, and to us, watch out, it's two redundant commands. Watch out, be on your guard. He's trying to emphasize this. He's saying the same thing twice. Watch out, which in modern day would be like this. Heads up. Like if we're walking together and I see something flying at your head, like a fully inflated football or something <laughs> flying at your head, I care about you. I'm going to say, watch, heads up, watch out. Something dangerous is coming at you, so watch out. Remember what we're talking about here. A man's life does not consist of his possessions. We're talking about money. And Jesus is saying, watch out when it comes to money. Because if you read through the Bible, money is dangerous. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 say it like this. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and in many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That sounds dangerous. Watch out. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a, not the, a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So people have actually wandered away from their beliefs because of money. Watch out, Jesus is saying. Heads up. You know what it'll do? It'll get you focused on thinking everything's about here and now. Heads up. And then he says, be on guard, which is actually in the Greek in the present tense. It means this. Continually be on guard. Always be on guard. It doesn't mean at the end of the service, the end of this message, and I say to you, you got to make a decision, be on guard, and you decide today, I'm going to be on guard from now on. That means tomorrow, and the next day, and always, because you're always living in the present. Be on guard against what? Look what it says. Don't just go with what I say. Against all kinds of greed. Greed is the danger. And I think about that, and most of us probably think, Phew, well, that's good because I'm not greedy. Because when I think of greedy, what I think of is like an old miserly guy who's made a bunch of money and won't share it with anybody. Like Scrooge is kind of the picture of what I get when I think of greed. But you know what the Bible actually defines greed as? It's a continual desire for more. And so how many of us think, if I just had this much more, if I just got a raise, if I just had as much as this friend, if I just had as much as that person on TV, if I could win this, if I could have that, nothing wrong with getting a promotion, Nothing wrong with a raise. Nothing wrong with winning money. But once that continual lust for more, that's greed. And the Bible says that's really dangerous. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon in all his wisdom said, whoever loves money never has money enough. There's a Roman proverb that says that a thirst for money is like drinking salt water. The more you get, the more you want. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. The Ecclesiastes passage says whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless, which is a theme in Ecclesiastes. You read the Old Testament, and you find that greed is actually a dividing line between the righteous and the unrighteous. In the Proverbs, it says it like this. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 26, it says, All day long he, the greedy person, craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. Apostle Paul in the New Testament, talking about greed, look at what he lists it with, and then he calls it idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about it, and he says that he he listed along with adultery and lust again, and he says there shouldn't even be a hint of this in the believer's life. It's dangerous stuff. And it's the downfall this guy had in his life because he just continually wanted more. And so Jesus says to him, watch out, be on guard. And then he talks about what this guy does. What ends up happening with this guy is he has a good year. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't cheated anybody. He hasn't stolen anything. He's not dishonest in the way that he comes about this. Just... The sun came up when it was supposed to, and it rained when it was supposed to, and the soil did what it was supposed to, and the crops came up, and he's doing really well even in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? That's a great question. We should all ask that question. The problem is his conclusion. His conclusion is he thinks that God's blessed him for his sake. Notice in verses 17 through 19, I'll read them to you, how many times he says the word I or my. 
And maybe you'll underline them. I underlined them in my Bible. He says this in verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Grab all the gusto. You only go around once. It's now or never. Live for number one. All other ways to say what's being said here with eat, drink, or be merry. Enjoy it now because this is all you get. And if you believe that all you get are these 80 years, you should. But do you believe in eternity? Because that's the bottom line question. Do you believe there's more than just here and now? Because life is about more than our possessions. Even if you don't believe in eternity, the reality is we all know you can't take it with you. I said in the first service, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul. A guy came up to me after the first service, told me a story about a guy that had a hearse, and he put a U-Haul on it, and he said, now you've seen it. I wish preachers would quit saying that. But uh, I saw an article this week by an unlikely source. Uh, I believe it was given originally as a speech. I think it was uh, Vassar, or I can't remember the college, but it was by Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King, for those of you who know who that is, probably isn't going to be accused of being a Christian. But when I read it, I thought, that's a lot more of a biblical view of money than a lot of Christians have. Because what he ended up doing, he started off talking about how he realized the principle that you can't take anything with you. When he was laying in a ditch with glass in his hair, all bloodied, he said his tibia was broken, sticking out of his jeans. He said, I had a MasterCard in my pocket, but I realized at that moment when you're bloody, laying in a ditch with glass in your hair, no one takes MasterCard. And he said, none of us are taking any of this stuff with us. And then he went on to say, Warren Buffett, he's going out broke. And Tom Hanks is going out broke, and Bill Gates is going out broke, and then he listed his own name. He said, Stephen King, broke. He said, we might have clothes on when they put us in a coffin. Naked we come in, we might have clothes on at the end. He said, it's all smoke and mirrors. We're not taking any of it with us. And then he went on and he told a story, which I thought was interesting. The story that he told was a parable. He explains his own parable, but he said, in the backyard of a house, there's a family. And they're having a picnic. And just picture it. The dad's there, and he's a little bit overweight, plump guy, friendly to be around. He's standing at the barbecue. And the mom and the kids, they're setting the table on the picnic table, and they're putting down fried chicken and coleslaw and potato salad. And the fence, uh, there's a fence around the yard. There's a, a big wood fence. And on the outside of the fence, there's an emaciated man who's looking in from one side. And on the other side, there, there's a mother, a single mother, who hasn't eaten in weeks. And there are some kids that are dying. And then he said, the backyard is America. We are the family. And then around us stand all these other issues. Now, he doesn't have eternity in mind. He's not thinking about any of those things. But what he's saying is, you've been entrusted with a bunch of stuff. What are you going to do with it? Is it just for you? Does God love us more? Is that why America is more financially blessed than all the other nations? Or is there more to it? And then if you do believe in eternity, and you believe... Do you believe this? If you believe that you're not only going to be 80 years old, but someday you're going to be 1,000 years old or 10,000 years old, 50,000 years old, 60,000, 70,000, 80,000, 100,000 years old, you believe you're going to be 100,000 years old someday and live for eternity? And how you spent that 80 years and the temporary stuff that you had there could potentially have an impact on how you live when you're 80,000 years old? How dumb would you have to be to live like there's just this 80 years? Life is more than just what we possess. And that's why God says at the end of this parable, you fool. And he says this statement at the end. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then he asked the question, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This isn't about estate planning. It's not about having a will and figuring out, well, my kids get this much. The point is this, it's not going to be you. And then he says, this is how it will be with Not the guy in the crowd who's worried about his inheritance. Not the guy in the parable that's a made-up person. This is how it will be, verse 21. With anyone, anyone, who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. So you're saying there's a way to be rich towards God. 
What is he talking about when he talks about being rich towards God? What he's talking about is what you hear in the Bible oftentimes called as treasure in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 talks about this. In fact, it's mentioned later in our passage in Luke chapter 12. After verse 21, Jesus says, therefore, Luke makes a therefore, and uh, he starts to talk just to his disciples. He's not just talking to the large crowd. He's talking to the 12. He's talking to the other people that are following him that are disciples. And later in the passage, he says in verse 33, after talking about not worrying and how God provides for things, he says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. So something that you actually do get to keep. Where no thief comes, and uh, they can't steal it, and they don't come near, and no moth destroys. So it's not temporary, it's permanent. So you can use your temporary stuff here and now in such a way that you get it later. It's an investment I was reading John Piper this week, said, God's not against investments. Like, you could read this and be like, oh, you shouldn't store up the credit, just give everything away. He said, God's not against investments. He's against bad investments. Bad investments are the investments where it's like it's all about this place, and it's all about here, and it's all about now. Good investments are when you use that money in such a way that it impacts eternity. Jesus talks about it again later in Luke. He talks a lot about money because he knows it's on people's hearts. He knows it's on people's minds. And so in Luke chapter 12, he talks about it later. In Luke chapter 16, after telling a really interesting story, which you can go study on your own, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. I tell you, use worldly wealth, your money, some translations say mammon, use your mammon, uh, to gain friends for yourselves. Here's why. So that when it is gone, he speaks about it like everyone knows it's going to be gone. We don't live like it. But So when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Make friends, use your money to make friends. Doesn't that almost, that almost sounds manipulative. Jesus is saying, be wise, be shrewd. Then he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. A lot of times we grab verse 10, we pull it out of context, and we make it ourselves think, well, if I've got $10 and I'm faithful with $10, then God will give me $100. And if I have to be faithful with $100, then God will give me $1,000. He's not talking about money. He says, if you'll be faithful with little, he's talking about money, then I'll trust you with much. He's talking about true riches. Look at the next verse. Verse 11. He says, let me find verse 11. Uh, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, money, who will trust you with true riches? Talking about there, change lives. If I can't trust you with money, like a test, how am I going to trust you with Eternity is being changed, something that stores up that will last forever. And so use your money here now in such a way that it impacts people's lives so that you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It will change how you live when you're 80,000 years old based on how you live while you're 80. Unless you think it's all about this place, that's really the heart of the question. And we demonstrate it with whether in God we trust with our finances. And if we do, then we become rich toward God which is what this parable is really about. But in order to get to that place, you've got to understand the first principle that life's about more than this possession. So how do we become rich towards God? Simple. We give. And we give towards things that make a difference for eternity. It's not just philanthropic. You know, Warren Buffett gives a lot of money away. doesn't mean he loves God. doesn't mean he's going to be rich towards God. Just giving his money away. But as a believer, you start giving your money towards the mission of God to make a difference for the kingdom of God so that lives will be changed for the glory of God. And so you start, that's how you use your money in a way that glorifies God is you start investing it, not against investments, against bad investments. Bad investments are any investment, regardless of the return, that only produces something here on this earth. Good investments have an eternal reward, treasure in heaven. And so we're talking about giving. We talk about giving uh, with Christians or in church anytime. Inevitably, where this conversation goes, like if we're sitting in my living room talking about this, I've done this a few times, different people that go to different churches in our church, and people will ask, well, about the tithe. What about the tithe? Do I have to tithe? How much is the tithe? How does the tithe work? And so let me just shoot as straight as possible, like we're sitting in my living room, about tithing. Okay, it can get fuzzy, it can get unclear, but what is tithing? So if you've never heard that language before, here's what tithing means very simply. It means a tenth. Doesn't mean 5%, doesn't mean 7%. Some people will say, you know, they drop $20 in the box, they make $50,000 a year, and they go, that was my tithe. That's not your tithe. You gave. It's not a tithe. A tithe is a tenth. The first place we see the tithes is at the very beginning of the Bible, when Abraham tithes in the Old Testament. So some people say, well, that was in the Old Testament. A lot of people say that doesn't matter anymore because it was under the law. Let me point this out for those of you who are familiar with the Bible. The law doesn't come until Moses. Abraham's before Moses. 
What happens with, in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, if you want to read it on your own, is what happens, summary of the story, is God blesses Abraham. And so what Abraham does is he voluntarily then gives a tenth back to God, a tithe. And then if you read the whole story, it's interesting, there's a wicked king from Sodom who wants to give Abraham some stuff. And Abraham says, no, I won't even take it because I don't want you to ever say that you made me rich. I want God to take care of me. What it was is a demonstration of trust. Saying it all comes from God. So he gives back a tenth. It's a principle, not a law, of the tithe that starts there. Then under Moses, under the law, you see a tithe. And I can't share everything about the tithe and through the Bible, but there's a resource I'd recommend to you. It's a book that's the best I've ever read on money in general. It's a guy named uh, Randy Elkhorn. He's written a book. There's a popular book called The Treasure Principle. That's just a chapter from the book I'm going to recommend. The book I'm going to recommend is called Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Elkhorn. If you want to study this on your own and kind of go, what are the passages to look at? Just he traces through. Whether you agree with his conclusions or not, just you kind of use that as a guide to walk through that. And one of the things that Elkhorn mentions as he's going through the Old Testament is that tithing isn't even giving in the Old Testament. That you see words used for tithing like taking the tithe, people take the tithe, people present the tithe, and people pay the tithe. Like it's a debt to God because it's all his and you're just giving back to him some of what's his. It's not giving. That doesn't mean there wasn't giving in the Old Testament. That's called free will offerings. And what you see in the Old Testament, a lot of times we think, well, that must have been tough. In the Old Testament, they had the tithe. They had to give that. It was obligation. And then no one's ever happy about giving. No, what you see is there's sometimes in the Old Testament where the leaders actually say to people, simmer down with all this giving. Like you're giving to, they're building the temple. And it's like, stop doing all this stuff, using all your skills, giving all this money. We got more than we need. Can you imagine that happening? <laughs> and what happens is that you see through the Old Testament, the tithe was a requirement. It was, it was clear that God was expecting at least the first tenth. Because God even says that you're robbing him when you don't give the tithe. In Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, it says this, Will a man rob God? This is God speaking. Yet you rob me, and then he knows what they're thinking, but you ask, how do we rob you? And then he says in tithes and offerings, you're under a curse. I wonder why we're so spiritually anemic in America. It's the whole nation of you, he says. Because you are robbing me. Maybe that's why for us. I mean, probably lots of other reasons too. He says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then he says this statement, you don't find this other places, Test me in this. Test me and see, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing which oftentimes we take that to say more money. Now, what if he starts then bringing revival in people's lives? True riches. But don't pour out so much blessing that you don't have enough room for it. The nation would repent. But you don't even trust me with worldly wealth. How can I trust you with a whole nation of people turning to you? Don't trust me with your money. And some people will say, well, but the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. It doesn't say that we have to tithe. True, it doesn't say we have to tithe. It also doesn't say that he abolishes tithing. We never point that part out. And the New Testament does talk about tithing. In fact, it's in the context of the passage we're looking at today in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus was having that lunch with that Pharisee, and his point was to confront the guy because he doesn't love God. But look at what he says. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. So the first fruits is a language you see in the Old Testament where you give the first fruits of everything. So they're tithing not only on their income, they would come from their job as Pharisees, but they're tithing on their garden. For this passage, I'm like, think about it. We grew some parsley. I wouldn't even think to give some of that. These guys are tithing even on that. And Jesus says this, but you neglect justice and the love of God. And his point is, you can tithe and not love God. Don't miss that. Loving God is the most important thing. Loving your neighbor is the most important thing. But then look what he says. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So he doesn't say it was wrong to tithe. He endorses tithing. But not at the expense of, don't think that because you obey the rules that that means you and God are good. No, you love God. Now, tithing, he, doesn't, he could have said, D.A. Carson, Bible scholar, you can read him on this too. If you just Google D.A. Carson on tithing, it'll probably pop up. He says this statement on this passage. He actually cites the one from Matthew, but he says, um, Jesus could have said here, you should love God and mercy and justice and let the herbs take care of themselves. But he doesn't. He said, you should have done the former and not neglected the latter. You love God. This is, in other words, this is not the most important thing, tithing, but it is a discipleship issue. You should do it. 
And so people ask the question, kind of, this is the brass tacks, right? Let me just hit you some Q&A type stuff. This is the way this will go via email or, or something along those lines. If you want to email this week, we can do that too. But do I have to tithe? That's the common question. If we're sitting in the living room together, people want to know, do I have to tithe? Which I almost never answer that question with a yes or no. Because what we want is we want law. Law is easier. Law is easier if it's yes, because now I know what the minimum requirement is. Law is easier because it's no, because now I know I don't have that burden. But we live in grace. And grace can be messy. And what people are oftentimes doing with this question, do I have to tithe? It's a faulty question because what you're asking is this. What's the minimum I have to do in order for God to be okay with me? I don't want God to cry. I'm going to use emotional language. Or I I want him to love me. Which, let me say this. God loves you and I have anything to do with your bank account. He gave for you. He gave his son. In fact, he uses financial language to describe it in one place. In 2 Corinthians, when he talks about Jesus coming, he says this. If you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heaven, with angels praising him, streets of gold, yeah, for your sakes he became poor. He came to this earth to rescue you. So that you, through his poverty and being nailed to a cross and having God forsake him, could be rich. Doesn't mean you can have money, so that you can have eternal life, that you can take hold of life that's really life, that you could have life to the fullest. And so it's a wrong question for us to ask do I have to tithe? We should be asking, in light of what he's done for us, we should be saying, how can I position my life in such a way that I can give away more so that I can be a demonstration of what Jesus did for me? Like John Wesley, I don't have time to tell you all these different stories, but 18th century evangelist talked about money. He also did it. He didn't just talk about it, he actually lived it. And what you read about in his life is you find out he actually came to a place where he decided, this is how much I need to live on. And no matter how much more I make, I'm going to give that away. And so it's in pounds rather than dollars, so it's hard to figure out. Sometimes you're sitting here or whatever. But you can read the story, and he decided, and he almost always kept right in that range of what he needed to live on, even though he made multiple times more when he decided that eventually in his life. He can give it away. How do you maximize what you have for the kingdom? Not to make God love you, but here, remember what we're talking about, being rich towards God, storing up treasure in heaven, living this 80 years as if it's not just about this 80 years. It's about forever. That's a bad question. And some people will say, well, what if I don't have enough money to tithe? What if I'm poor? What if I can't afford to tithe? And so we're all rich in God's eyes. Most of us would agree with that statement. But what, what if I can't afford to tithe because I've got debt, uh, medical bills, the car broke down, different things happen. God really expect me to still do this? And I want to point you back to this passage. That verse I read earlier, Luke chapter 12, verse 33, says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. How many of us, in order to give to the poor, would actually have to sell something? Probably very few. We have to reorient our lives. But remember who he's talking to in this passage. He's talking to day laborers. That means they work, they get paid, they live off that money. He's talking to his disciples who left their businesses, fishing businesses and whatever different tax collecting businesses. All they have now is the clothes. They are living on the edge of faith. All they have is the clothes on their back. And Jesus says to them, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Does Jesus expect poor people to give too? If you read through the Bible, in fact, usually his examples and the biblical examples are of poor people giving. The cornerstone passage on giving in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And they give out of their poverty. Jesus tells the story of the widow with her might and how she gives. She didn't have much that she gave everything she had to live on. And what's crazy is the early church did this. And we talk about the Malachi passage. The early church did this. It says in Acts chapter 2, so selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as he had need. And you know what it goes on to say in that passage? And God was adding to the number daily those who are being saved. You're trusting me with worldly wealth. I'm going to trust you with true riches. Does he expect people that can't afford to do it? Here's the deal. We look at it usually from this world perspective and we think, why has God taken my money? He knows how hard it is already. Here's the reality. He's doing this for you. He's telling you to use what you have to invest for eternity. It's not because God needs your money. not because the church needs your money. not because some missionary needs your money, some parachurch thing needs. God's going to take care of it. If he wants to do the work, he'll take care of it regardless of what you give. He's talking about it for your sake so you don't live your life like a fool, like it's all about this life. And so he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because you feel obligated, because you have to, because someone strong-armed you into doing it, because if you don't give, then people are going to hell. No, it's for, you should give in 
But you decide in your heart to give that you can give cheerfully. So in other words, don't even if you could be given 50% of your income or 90% of your income, and if you're doing it because you feel like that's what you have to do, God doesn't want that. You give or you can give joyfully. Then you start giving and it becomes a joy. Because you might think, well, I just don't want to give. It's showing that you're like the guy and the, the foolish guy. So try it. And they'll start showing you the blessing of it. Well, another question people ask, well, do I have to tithe to the church? Or do I have to give to the church? Does it need to go to the church? Now, there are different ways you can answer that question. Lots of different ways that different scholars and pastors and different people will talk about this. Some people will talk about how the church replaces the temple in the Old Testament as God's institution. Um, I don't know about that, but where there's a stronger argument biblically is that some people will talk about that tithe under the law was actually to pay the priest in the Old Testament. And then Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll have to study this on your own, we'll get into the whole passage, about how if you preach the gospel, you should get paid for preaching the gospel. And he says this, this little phrase, just as in some translations, or in the same way, he's talking about the priest being paid in the same way, missionaries, people preach the gospel, the pastors, they should get paid. So then you should give to the church, is what people will argue. First Timothy chapter 5, those who teach, you get double honor, some, some of those things, and they use those verses. That's not, I wouldn't say that is super convincing to me, to be candid with you. Um, I'll tell you myself, as I think about it, you think you should give to the church? I do, personally, by conviction and by practice. Um, but it's not because of a place in the temple, and it's not because of a passage of scripture where there's a couple words in First Corinthians chapter nine that tie these together. Um, personally, I look at it and go, "We're trying to be rich towards God, and we don't want to make a bad investment. We want to make a good investment. So, what's the best investment? Well, we see in the New Testament that God's plan for reaching the world is the church. It's not a parachurch. It's not any other kind of ministry. It's not a missions agency. It's not any of this stuff. God's plan for reaching the world is the church. Read the book of Acts. We spent eighteen months there. It's all about the church." What is it that Jesus died for? He said, I died for my bride, the church. We sang about the bride earlier, the church. Jesus gives the promise, the gates of hell will not prevail against, not any other organization, the church. And so personally, we give our money, we tithe to the church, just Shannon and I do. And we give above the tithe to the church because, not because we're obligated to it, because we have to, not because we work here, because I think it's a good investment. Now, we can give free will offerings above and beyond that. So we sponsor some kids with compassion, do some of those types of things. Just telling you an example, this is, this is how I decide. But if you don't want to give to the church, don't give to the church. There's no verse in the New Testament that says, you must give your tithe to the church. So some people want to give to the church, maybe you don't trust the church. I would say this. If you don't trust the church, if it's this church, I'd invite this. And if, it's, if you're watching online, another church, um, you should work through that. You should go to the leaders and talk about why, why don't you trust. Now, I'm not saying you don't agree. Like, of course, we don't all agree about everything. Should we put sermons online or not put sermons online? Whatever. I mean, we don't agree about that. Um, then let's just be gracious in some of those things we disagree. But I'm talking about trust. Like, you think things are being misused. Um, you should go and, and deal with that. And if you don't trust at the end of that conversation, then don't give. In fact, you probably should leave. And I don't mean that to, like, push. I'm not trying to be crass or harsh. Um, I'm trying to push people out of our church. But if you don't trust, then you probably need to find a place where you can thrive, where you can be. Um, be gracious and then ask God. Each one should give in their hearts and they can give cheerfully. And then what about this question? This is a real question. Aren't there people that are godly people that don't think the New Testament says you should die? And the answer is yes. In fact, I'll point you to one person if you really want to get into this. David Allen Black. He's a Greek scholar. But let me tell you about his life. Because that's what you need to look at. You want to talk about whether you trust somebody. Don't trust somebody who says, you don't have to tithe and they're greedy. <laughs> don't trust somebody who says, you don't have to tithe and they give like 1% of their income away. Okay, don't trust that. They're obviously looking at their experiences when they look at the text, trying to justify their behavior. Look at somebody like David Allen Black. The guy, he, he goes on mission trips every year, pays for his own mission trips. He teaches kids, he's a Greek scholar, he teaches uh, Ethiopian folks a lot of times how to study the Bible in Greek, because the Bible is originally written in Greek so they can understand it better, sends them back to their country so they can go teach people there Greek so that the people can understand the New Testament better. And then he goes home at the end of his days and he works on a farm and just lives off of the farm. So he's trying to sustain himself doing these things. And then a lot of times you'll, periodically, you just got to grab these stories, but periodically a story will come up where there was some need, a big need a lot of times, like $10,000 type need, and he meets it, he gives to it. And what he comes to the conclusion of is that the Bible, the New Testament, does not emphasize tithing, a percent, 10% giving. He says it talks about voluntary and cheerful giving. And then he says this, so give 10% or 50% or 90% of your income away. 
Because here's the deal with the tithe. It was never intended to be a goal. It was a starting point. It's where God started in the Bible and could be a place for us to have a goal to be starting point, but it's never the ceiling for our giving. And that's the truth about the tithe. And so I would just say this to you as our church and, and wrapping up. Um, if you are not a tither, I would challenge you to consider doing it as a starting point. In fact, in your worship program today, uh, at the back side of the connection card, if you look at it, there's a 90-day tithe challenge. Here's what I ask you to do. Just put your name on the card and check on there that you do the 90-day tithe challenge. Here's why. Not because we're going to be like the Gestapo and show up at your house and ask you to show your W-2s, and then we're going to look at what you gave, and we're going to try and figure this if you're really doing the thing. That's, not, that's like a cult, okay? That's not, hopefully you wouldn't think that we'd even do, think about doing that type of thing. But here's what we want to do. If you check the tithe challenge on there, that maybe you're even just thinking about doing the tithe challenge, we want to help encourage you in this because this is really about you. So if you think that we're trying to scam you to get more money to give to the church, give it to another church, okay? We'll tell you good churches in town you can give the money to. Give it to another ministry. Find a missionary. Find somebody. If you think it's a scam, it's not a scam. We want to grow you in giving so you can store up treasure in heaven so you can be rich towards God. And so if you check that box on there, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send you an encouraging note right away. So sometime in this next week or so, we're going to give you a book. The book's going to, um, it's a treasure principle. It's a chapter out of that Money, Possessions, Eternity book that I mentioned. We're going to send that to you as a resource for you, just to kind of grow you in giving. And throughout this next 90 days, we're going to try and encourage you, try and grow you in your giving. And if you already tithe, let me challenge you this. Maybe uh, God brings this message into your life today so you can think about how you can give more. And you can Work in your life in some way where you could bless more people. Maybe it's sponsor some kids from Compassion International. Maybe you need to start carrying some cash in your pocket. And most of us carry credit cards most of the time. Maybe you have some cash in your pocket. So when you see an opportunity to give, you can give to it, whether it's at the store, at a restaurant, whatever it is. Maybe you need to, in, in your life, reorient your life so that instead of putting some of your money in savings, that you put in savings, one of your savings accounts can be called your giving fund. And when somebody can't pay their rent or needs to buy a car, or has some big need, that you've been saving up money to be able to help meet that need. Just thinking through ways that you can store up treasure in heaven that you're going to get to enjoy for eternity. And if you're just getting started with this, then maybe you need to take the tithe challenge. If you already tithe and you want the resources and the encouragement over the next month, you can check that card on there too, and uh, we will try to, to bless you in that. But don't be a fool. And don't be robbed of the life that God has for you because you have a faulty view of the stuff that's here. It's all more than just this stuff and you have an opportunity to be rich. In fact, God wants you to be rich toward him. So let's pray. Father, I pray uh, that you would use us as salt and light in this world, not just with our words, not just because we're moral, because we're burdened for what you're burdened for, and that you'd use our money like our time and like our talent and like our relationships, you'd use our money to make an investment for eternity. God, I pray that we would be a church that would be proven faithful with worldly wealth so that you will trust us with changed lives. God, I pray that you would save people. I pray you would change people. I pray that you would pry our greedy little fingers off of some of our stuff and use it to make a difference for eternity. God, I pray we would store up treasures in heaven. I pray that you would... Help us to find our satisfaction, sufficiency, and security and running to you. That the name of the Lord will be our strong tower and that we will run to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.